What self-actualization is, is being able to um, direct yourself and um, create a vision for an ideal state of the world, a better way than a better way to do something. And then to not just have this remain an idea in your head, but to implement it in the world and see how other people respond to it, see what they think about it. Does it actually help them improve their lives? That's the heart of self-actualization. That is Russell Green. I'm Dwayne Lester, and this is Top Priority. Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is economic opportunity. We're going to be diving into stakeholder capitalism. It was recorded on January 21st, 2021. As I mentioned earlier, our guest is Russell Green, who we'll meet here in a second. In the conversation that follows, you'll hear us use terms like community and vision. You'll hear us talk about mutually reinforcing principles. And before we get into the interview, let's talk about what those things mean. Americans for Prosperity Foundation and the Grassroots Leadership Academy are part of the Stand Together community. A link to the Stand Together website is included in the show notes. Each episode will focus heavily on how our vision guides our decisions in the different specific areas of focus we're trying to impact. We call these priority initiatives, and we sometimes abbreviate them to PI or PIs. Now, our vision is very ambitious. We break barriers that stand in the way of people realizing their potential. This moves our society towards one of mutual benefit, where people succeed by helping others improve their lives. This vision is built upon four mutually reinforcing principles, which we'll also discuss. The principles are equal rights, mutual benefit, openness, and self-actualization. You can find the vision and the four mutually reinforcing principles also in the show notes. Now, enough about that. Let's get to the interview and let's talk about stakeholder capitals. Yeah, so I, I well, I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself because I, I think it's important. My parents were both MBAs, so, you know, business oriented folks, and they started uh, a couple different companies. And um, so I was raised to view the world sort of in that way. And then in 2002 or three, I got involved in CrossFit, the fitness company, just as an enthusiast going, going to the gym and doing the workouts. And I actually met the guy who founded it. And um, over the next, gosh, 17 years, I was pretty closely involved with CrossFit. And I started working there when I got out, out of college. And during that period, I saw it grow from one CrossFit gym in the whole world to at the peak, gosh, over, over 15,000 gyms wow. in the entire world. So it was one of the fastest growing chains of all time. And uh, I was working for the company for nine of those years in a bunch of different capacities. As anyone knows who's worked in a startup, you might think you're going to have one particular role, but as the, the company expands, you're going to take on 10 or 15 different roles. It's going to change every day or every month. 
And, uh, I, you know, I did everything from things related to lawsuits to social media, uh, brand defense, um, everything you could possibly imagine. So as I was working for CrossFit, the competitors of CrossFit um, didn't really want to respond to the rise of it through market mechanisms. They didn't want to compete in the marketplace. So what they started doing is, first of all, spreading baseless claims about CrossFit and saying it was dangerous. And then secondly, they started lobbying for uh, what's called occupational licensure. So they started lobbying for it to be illegal to teach someone how to do a pull-up or a push-up <laughs> unless you had a government license. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I wish I was joking, but that's literally what happened. And, you know, I, at the same time, I, I sort of had read, you know, the standard libertarian books. But it's one thing to read, you know, Friedrich Hayek, The Road to Serfdom. You know, and just think about these ideas in an abstract term. But when, when you're working for a business and confronting the fact that your affiliates and the people you train might literally be threatened with jail time because they had the temerity to teach someone how to squat. I mean, that makes, that makes it very different. No, and, you, and you, there's a there's a, a quote from Adam yeah. Smith that really relates to that. And he said, people of the same trade seldom meet together, even for merriment and diversion. But the conversation ends in a conspiracy against the public. And that's really what we're talking about here. We have a, you know, a yes. bunch of gym owners that get together and say, here's a threat. We can compete with them, but it would be easier to use coercion to destroy them. Exactly. And, um, you know, so we uh, we lobbied against that uh, successfully. The, the bill was, although it was strangely passed, it was never implemented. So no gym owners actually went to jail. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> and uh, once we were successful stopping that bill in D.C., um, we were pretty it, it pretty much stopped there as far as fitness training is concerned. But then there was the issue of nutrition um, in many states. You already need a government license in order to give any sort of food advice. So if you wanted to tell someone, hey, you know, maybe maybe think twice before having that big gulp. If you want to be a healthy person, that, that could require uh, a government license, unfortunately. So we, we started lobbying against that as well um, because a lot of fitness trainers do give nutritional advice because after all, you're only in the gym an hour a day, but it's what you do outside of the gym that has as much or even more of an impact on your overall health and fitness. So that's how, uh, that, that was my life uh, before Stand Together. And then in uh, 2019, my friend Kevin Lavelle started working at Stand Together and I was looking for something new, something different to do. So uh, I had a couple meetings with him and um, I guess we, I decided first and then later he, um, that it might make sense for uh, me to, you know, make a career change. So ever since late 2019, I've been working at Stand Together um, within what we're calling the institution of business. So if you think of the key institutions in society, communities, government, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the third. Education. <laughs> Education, there we go, that's an important one. <laughs> I'm here for in you, business, I'm here for you. We are taking the mantle of the institution of business and then representing its perspective in um, all of Stand Together's priority initiatives. What's the purpose of of business what's what's business in its proper role what we believe in the institution of business is that the role of business in society is to create voluntary 
mutually beneficial exchanges that help people improve their lives, providing them with products and services they value more highly than their alternatives, and to do so responsibly while consuming fewer resources. To the extent a business accomplishes this, its profitability is one valid measure of the value it creates in society. That's a mouthful. That is a mouthful. There's a lot there. (laughs) There's a lot there. (laughs) One thing to really focus on in that I think that is important is it's voluntary, mutually beneficial exchanges. And that goes to the heart of what we're talking about today. And when we start talking about stakeholder capitalism versus shareholder capitalism versus really good profit, which is what a lot of that business, uh, that role of business comes from the idea of good profit of creating value for someone else that they will engage in voluntarily and both parties walk away with uh, a greater amount of wealth, a greater amount of value. What exactly is stakeholder capitalism? And then let's get into why it's bad or why it's good. So stakeholder capitalism, I'm going to tell you the story that you're likely to hear in the media first, and then I'm going to give you my commentary on it. All right. The, the, the story that you often hear in the media, whether it's Fast Company or Fortune or the New York Times, uh, very often goes something like, um, in the 1950s, businesses weighed the interests of all their stakeholders, not just their shareholders, and they took a long-term perspective. And then Milton Friedman came along and ruined everything with his 1970 article arguing that the corporate social response or the social responsibility of business is to increase its profits. And that then this paradigm, the shareholder primacy or shareholder capitalism paradigm was dominant for, I don't know, roughly the next five decades. But now, Now we're entering the era of stakeholder capitalism, which is returning to the um, 1950s view of business, and it's restoring emphasis on long-term perspectives as well as on helping all of the stakeholders involved, not just um, the shareholders. So how do you define a stakeholder? What does that mean? Yeah. So, so the, the only problem with that narrative is that it's entirely historically inaccurate and doesn't define any of its terms. Well, those are the only two problems with it. So, so um, but you hit right at the heart of the issue, which is that um, how you define a stakeholder is incredibly ambiguous. Um, I, I tried to answer that question when I first started researching this uh, topic. And I think there's over a hundred different possible definitions of who a stakeholder is in the academic literature. And they vary widely from from source to source. So there really isn't a consistent definition of who a stakeholder is. and, And that really goes at the heart of the problem, which is that I think it is accurate to note that a business has many different people who affect or are affected by what it does and that it needs to consider them. It needs to consider it what its customers value. It absolutely needs to consider what its employees value and its suppliers and the communities it works with. That is essential. No business is going to succeed over the long term if it ignores those stakeholders at the um Because even if you solely care about making as much money as possible, if you want to do that in a sustainable way, nobody's going to do business with you if you ignore what they care about, right? In order to engage in those voluntary, mutually beneficial 
transactions. You have to, over the long term, establish yourself as the preferred partner, right, of your communities, of your employees, um, of your customers, etc. However, the way each business does this is going to vary according to what their vision is, according to the environment they're working in. And it's going to also change over time. Businesses aren't going to have the exact same vision in year one that they do in year 20. You know, I'm, as I'm listening to you, I'm hearing I'm hearing you talk about the ideas that that we need to go back to the way things were done in the 50s, um, that we need to get away from shareholder primacy this idea that that the ultimate good is to increase the value or the the profit for the stakeholder and we need to go back and 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 really put an emphasis on providing for the stakeholders but there one question i constantly try to ask when i'm when i'm analyzing something or when i'm thinking about something is what are the assumptions being made here what what are the assumptions being made here and it seems to me that stakeholder theory the assumptions being made are Businesses aren't caring about those things right now. They don't care about their stakeholders. And like you just said, if they if there weren't if they weren't caring about stakeholders, they really couldn't make a profit. They could not. They you can't do shareholder primacy without caring about stakeholders. Is that am I wrong there? Am I making sense? Yeah, I would be very hesitant to characterize everyone who's an advocate of stakeholder capitalism in any one way. Because there's an immense amount of diversity in the field. Okay. If you look at how it started, um, it's uh, arguably its founder, the founder of the field, R. Edward Freeman. He was a self-professed libertarian, and he actually based this on interviews with hundreds, if not thousands, of business leaders. And he was just describing what they do in their day-to-day lives. And what he realized was that they don't just look at how much money they're making and talk to their accounting department, but most of what the executives were actually doing was balancing and reconciling the interests of all the different groups that they worked with. So it was a description of what businesses were already doing. It wasn't saying, you know, hey, this is a revolutionary new way to think about business. But that was 40 years ago. Since then, a lot of people in the stakeholder capitalism field have moved away from that point of view, Freeman's original point of view. And now they're thinking that, hey, we have to force businesses to think about their stakeholders in a particular way because they will not otherwise. I, I've got a copy of a book here, Conscious Capitalism by John Mackey. When I read that, I was I was going into it thinking, I'm going to read a book about capitalism and all the good things about capitalism. And as I got more into it, I started realizing this isn't so much about capitalism, but it's more about how to run a business. And is that, was I reading there a, uh, a like a dissertation on con- on uh, stakeholder capitalism? <laughs> you were actually. Okay. Uh, John Mackey's one of the most prominent uh, entrepreneurs or even individuals within the stakeholder capitalism movement. But he does so uh, from a perspective of someone who's ver- been very successful in business and who also has uh, deep libertarian convictions. And um, it's worth Googling um, John Mackey's conversation or uh, rather discourse with Milton Friedman on this very topic in Reason Magazine because they went back and forth on this issue, shareholder primacy versus stakeholder primacy. And um, what's, what's 
what I took away from it was really how much, at the end of the day, how much Mackie and Milton Friedman actually agreed. Both of them agree that in order to create uh, shareholder value over the long term, you absolutely have to consider the interests of your stakeholders. But Mackey sort of um, reverses the order of priority. So what Mackey says is, hey, the purpose of business is to create value for these stakeholders. And then by doing that, you will make money. Whereas Friedman thinks about it in the opposite way. He thinks, let's buy businesses by pursuing profit as their purpose will end up also creating value for all these stakeholders. But if you just thought about it descriptively, like what are they actually saying that businesses can and should do? It's almost exactly the same thing. They both recognize the reality that nobody's going to stay in business over the long term unless they get bailed out by the government, right? Unless they get preferential treatment from the government, nobody's going to stay in business over the long term by being solely focused on their own personal greed and not considering the interests of the people who they work with and who they affect. So far, what I'm hearing, I don't see a problem with. I'm not hearing how this is problematic or how it goes against our vision of the proper role of business. So where's the danger in stakeholder capitalism? The danger comes in uh, primarily when people start talking about government mandates and thinking that they can take one particular way of doing business or one particular vision for the role of business in society and then requiring every single business to comply with it in the exact same way. That takes stakeholder capitalism from just being an idea that people can agree with or not to being something that's codified, that's required by law, and therefore being um, interpreted and implemented and mandated by the government. And that's that's a very significant transformation. So we're talking about we're talking about organizations or, or businesses or maybe politicians. And I hope you can go into depth and in exactly who's doing what. But this is basically saying this is how we think businesses should be run. And rather than starting a business or maybe they have a business and they say this is how we run our business and this is how we think businesses should be run. Uh, and furthermore, we're going to use government coercion to force everyone to do these things rather than saying we're going to set the example and our success will be a model for others to follow. They're saying you're going to do this whether you want to or not. And government's here to make you. Yes. And, you know, there haven't been any successful attempts yet to pass laws like this, but we do. We have seen many proposals. Um, one you might uh, look up is uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren proposed about three years ago, the Accountable Capitalism Act. Um, that's one attempt to mandate stakeholder capitalism. Uh, she you said bill, a, you uh, said accountable Capitalism? Okay. Yes. I, maybe I need new earphones. I, I thought you said cannibal capitalism. And I was like, wait, what? That doesn't make <laughs> any sense. Okay. Accountable Capitalism Act. All right. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. N- no problem. Uh, now I'm wondering what a cannibal capitalism act is. <laughs> so am I. I pass that bill instead. Yeah. Maybe you can imagine my confusion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And then, um, but but she's far from the only one. Um, we've seen a lot of similar rhetoric from 
some of the more populism-oriented uh, Republican members of Congress, as well as um, there are interest groups such as B Lab, which is um, you might have heard of benefit corporations. Um, there are corporations like Patagonia, for example, that are committed to or expressly committed to not just making money for their shareholders, but also considering stakeholder considerations. And they put this into their corporate charter. But the, what's really happening now that's new is B-Lab, which created the benefit corporation movement, is not just trying to make it an option on the table for businesses – they're now lobbying to mandate it in a very similar way to what Elizabeth Warren has proposed. And what's in it for B-Lab to make that happen? I mean, I can speculate, but it does seem interesting that um, a company which um, essentially – not a, sorry, not a company, a nonprofit – which has created a certification that verifies whether a company is a benefit corporation. It is interesting that they are also interested in government preferences and eventually even requirements for that particular type of corporation. It seems like they would benefit from it. Can you tell me more? I want to go back and talk about uh, the, the Accountable Capitalism Act and what exactly yes. that would do. Um, because when I was reading about it, when I read what about this act, I'm thinking this is some Atlas Shrugged level um, <laughs> shenanigans going on here. Am I wrong? Well, I like I'm going to admit something, which is that I'm not the biggest Ayn Rand fan. But you and know, that's the podcast, that, folks. Uh, we'll talk to you later. <laughs> I'm kidding. Go ahead. That being said, um, <laughs> yes. It's, so. Her act, uh, to me, the most striking thing about it would be that currently um, business charters are handled at the state level and essentially our current system says you as the entrepreneur get to decide what the purpose of your business is, what you set your own vision. Right. How you're going to prioritize resources, what you're going to invest in, what matters to you. Um, what she would do is change it from a state level, largely um, voluntary oriented system to a federally regulated system, at least for large corporations. And she would require these fed federally licensed corporations to include in their charters that they are committed not just to whatever their uh, corporate managers or investors are interested in, but also to a series of stakeholder interests and that they could lose their charters or their license to do business if they did not meet the government's interpretation of those responsibilities. Which are, as we've already established, Somewhat nebulous and undefined and difficult to to really uh, yes. put a finger on. It, and impossible to standardize. I can't emphasize that enough because w what, what I really want people to walk away with here, Dwayne, is that it is absolutely important for businesses to consider how their um, operations impact their customers, their employees, their communities. They absolutely can and should do that. And they should take a long-term approach. But the fallacy is to think that there is a way 
there's a single one size fits all way to do this that's going to apply to every single business in every single industry across the country. Th- that will never work. Well, you just think about the fact that many family farms are corporations. And to put the same set of standards on a family farm that you might put on a manufacturer in a, in a huge city or you might put on an import-export corporation, you have all these different standards that might not even be possible in some locations to, to meet. They just might not be able to do it. What scares me the most is the idea that this would all be centrally planned by the Office of United States Corporation on the federal level. <laughs> yes. And I, I should emphasize that, to be fair to Senator Warren, her proposal is focusing on the very largest corporations. But hers is not the only proposal. If you look at B-Lab and some other um, figures within the movement that's really advocating for mandatory stakeholder capitalism right now, they're really focused on every single business, small or large, farm or in- industrial or, you know, information technology. So it, it is your concern is absolutely valid and it absolutely applies to many of the proposals that we're seeing today. I think it's also important to remember that what they promise, what is promised at the beginning or what is expected at the beginning of isn't how it ends up. For example, if I'm not mistaken, the income tax was only going to affect the very rich, just like the top 5%. Um, yes. That's what was promised. And then years later, we have what we have today. So what I'm hearing is, is that we have this this philosophy of business that differs from shareholder capitalism, which focuses on increasing profits for the shareholders, that instead focuses on increasing uh, the benefits, the, the, the well-being, the fulfillment of all the stakeholders involved. And this philosophy, there are some who want to mandate it through the federal government at various levels. And the danger there is, is that once we start allowing for a top-down, centrally planned set of standards, that that obviously goes against a lot of our vision. That we, yes. we, we, you know, we want to eliminate barriers. We want to create a society of mutual benefit. And generally, societies of mutual benefit don't require government force. Because if it's not mutually beneficial, you can just walk away. So this this idea of top-down, coerced stakeholder capitalism clearly goes against our vision. Without a doubt. And, and also just the um, arrogance. <laughs> I, I have to use that word. The arrogance to think that a single particular way of thinking about business can and should be imposed upon every business um, that really goes against the principle of humility. It also would cut against the very diversity that makes American society um, really so rich. Rich not just materially, but you know, rich in a more uh, literary sense. Um, you know, do we really want every single business that we interact with to have the exact same priorities and to weigh them in exactly the same way and this essentially uh, even the same business models? Um, that doesn't seem to be a place that I, I would like to live in. Some might call this arrogance a fatal conceit. I'm just saying <laughs> it, it might it might be that. So when we, we start digging, clearly it's going to erect barriers. Uh, clearly it, it, it doesn't rely on mutual benefit. Can you talk a bit about how it goes against the idea of, of equal rights? 
gosh, it's kind of it's 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 going to be difficult for me to talk about this without using some jargon and some abstract language. I'm going to do my best, but please bear with me. Um, one of the things that um, Hayek talks about a lot when he talks about equal rights is that um, the more the government gets involved in central planning and in um, controlling not just equality of opportunity, but equality of outcomes, the more the government gets involved in that, it actually has to become unequal or unequal rather in the way it treats various groups. Because um, it's there's no way to set rules that are clearly and, and fairly delineated ahead of time and also mandate stakeholder capitalism because the terms are so ambiguous, the um, application of them is so complex that once government officials have to apply them, they are inevitably and necessarily going to have to do so in an arbitrary way that's going to be um, very beneficial to some groups and very harmful to others. There's no way whatsoever to reconcile stakeholder capitalism mandates with a system of equal rights. One thing to think about that I, I think is important when we talk about this, and just to define equal rights, again, I don't have it memorized. I'll read from our our stuff here. A system of equal rights articulated in the Declaration of Independence requires respect for the dignity of all people and equality under the law. And that goes to a rule of law, which you just said is almost impossible because a rule of law depends on everyone understanding what the law is, everyone understanding what the expectations are, and everybody being able to operate in a way based on that understanding. And if the regulators and the enforcers of those regulations can't even decide on definitions for what these things are, it would be impossible for businesses across the United States to do this also and operate in a way that is, is legal and treats everyone fairly. Yeah, in the ideal sense, um, we have government serving as sort of a referee, right? Enforcing the rules of the game, calling balls and strikes, kicking people out if they're um, violating the rules that were established beforehand. But what stakeholder capitalism mandates and other similar types of laws would um, encourage is the government starting to be more of a coach Right. So it's telling businesses, entrepreneurs, not just what they're allowed to do and not allowed to do, but actually telling them what their strategy should be and, and which tactics they should use and not use and being able to yank them out of the game at any moment simply because they didn't meet the coach's arbitrary standards of performance. That's a very significant transformation of the role of government. The more we talk about this, the more I'm getting a pain in my left eye just from the <laughs> the, the, the conversation, because the idea of, of the government, the U.S. government acting as a business coach for corporations around the country is so absurd. Yeah. Y you know, I, I try to put myself myself in other people's shoes to just sort of understand where they're coming from when they support ideas like this. And I think that people... Everyone probably has some companies that they just fundamentally disagree with. Um, for example, uh, for a while, 
uh, Twitter, which is a, a company I use and actually am a fan of, but they ha- they would attack certain politicians for um, perhaps using threatening or violent language, while on the other hand, they would leave up some very other violent politicians from other countries and, and essentially, um, it would, it seemed like they were picking winners and losers and their content moderation in a very biased way. And I disagreed with their implementation of their policy. Um, I certainly recognize their right to moderate content. No question about that. But I didn't think that they were actually applying it in a, in a fair and equal manner. That being said, I, just because I disagree with what Twitter's doing, doesn't mean that I want to ban it or make it illegal or or create a government office of tweets that's going to say, hey, you know, these tweets are acceptable and these tweets are not. And Twitter, this is how you have to run your content moderation. So what I think um, people, the mistake that I think people who support stakeholder capitalism mandates are making is that they're conflating what they like and dislike about business with what should be legal or illegal. And you can dislike many businesses and what they're doing while at the same time recognizing their right to operate. So when we talk about mutual benefit, I mean, how how does this violate mutual benefit in your eyes? If, if we were to have laws that, that dictated stakeholder capitalism, how does that yeah. go against the idea of mutual benefit? So one of the ideas of mutual benefit or one of the ways to talk about it is win-win, right? What mutual benefit means is that everyone involved in the transaction and perhaps even people not involved in the transaction benefit from it. And that's why they're voluntarily choosing to engage in it. When you read what people in the, in the community that's uh, advocating for mandates, they think of business as win-lose, zero-sum, if you will. So they think that if shareholders are winning over the long term, that must mean that employees are being treated unfairly or communities are losing out in some capacity or suppliers are, are maybe uh, not getting paid you know, a fair amount. So they, their conception of business is much more in a uh, single side benefit or win-lose uh, framework. I don't think that that is an accurate representation of business, or at least the way business can be. You know, we all have to recognize that there are many cases of business um, malfeasance, right? Simply the idea of good profit implies that there's bad profit as well. Not all profit is legitimate. Um, So we shouldn't be reflexive or instinctual defenders of everything business does. Right. It's not necessarily good. But that being said, you know, we do have to recognize that businesses that are able to succeed over the long term without depending upon government favors or preferences, there's no way that they can do that unless they are creating beneficial um, partnerships with everyone involved and affected by their business. They're just employees, for example. You might think that as a business owner, you can just pay your employees a very low amount and you're just gonna save money and that's the end of the story. But the fact of the matter is, if you insist on paying them as little as possible and that's your sole priority, because you're trying to save money, there's a cost that you pay for that. You're either going to attract 
um, lower quality employees or the employees you do have are, are going to be less engaged at work because they know that they will not be rewarded for higher levels of performance. So you cannot over the long term succeed with a win-lose mindset in business unless you're getting some sort of unfair advantage. Let's talk about openness a bit. We talk about equal rights and mutual benefit, and that fosters openness by allowing the free movement of ideas, resources, and people that generates knowledge, innovation, and opportunity, fueling progress throughout society. When you put barriers in place, when you erect these barriers, it makes it difficult for knowledge, innovation, and opportunity to arise. How would stakeholder capitalism from from top down, how would that inhibit openness? Yeah, so when we talk about openness, the first word that comes to mind for me is diversity, right? What openness means is that you're willing to be open to, to new and different ideas, approaches, business models, etc. And stakeholder capitalism mandates are almost the exact opposite of that because they're saying that there's only one right way to run a business. So they are forbidding any other sort of, of resource allocation, any other way to create a vision for a company. So um, even if you think of the factors that stakeholder capitalism mandate advocates um, rely upon or, or uh, propose, like uh, ESG is the phrase that, that you'll hear a bunch. Um, ESG stands for environment, social and governance. So they're saying that uh, businesses should uh, weigh those factors, not just their profits, but also their impact on those three factors, ESG. If you think about those three factors, they aren't always consistent with each other, right? Your E might come at the expense of your S or your G, right? So you're, you're let's say uh, you make a governance reform that gives shareholders a lot more um, ability to um, have a say in what the executives are doing. That might be good for governance, but those shareholders at the same time might want to actually, um, they might have a very different vision for, um, let's say the amount of labor that a company needs in order for them to maximize their, in order for shareholders to make as much money as possible out of their investment, they might instead want to hire fewer employees. So it's not the case that every one of those factors, E, S, and G is aligned. There's very frequently, at least in the short and middle term, uh, medium terms, there very frequently are conflicts between the share, between the stakeholders and between the, these ESG factors. So what the uh, person who's running the business has to do is they have to find a way to reconcile those competing interests over the long term. But the point I keep coming back to is there's no universal answer. There's no formula that you could apply that's going to be the one right way for every small, medium, and large business in every state across the country to, to do this. That It's absurd to even think that there could be one. Let's talk about self-actualization, the, the fourth of the four mutually reinforcing principles. For such a society to exist, we're talking about a society of mutual benefit where barriers are out of the way of people realizing their potential. For such a society to exist, its key institutions, education, communities, business, and government remove rather than erect barriers to people realizing their potential and finding fulfillment. As more people have the opportunity to use their unique talents to succeed, 
By helping others improve their lives, society flourishes. It would seem obvious, but I want to hear how you see the idea of top-down stakeholder capitalism enforcement violating the idea or inhibiting the idea of self-actualization. Yeah. So one of the concepts I've really learned a lot about at Stand Together is entrepreneurship and principled entrepreneurship. And what I think is sort of unique about Stand Together's approach to it is that it doesn't say that the only entrepreneurs are people who start their own businesses. The idea is sort of that you, whatever your role in society is, can approach it with an entrepreneurial mindset. And what that means is being contribution motivated. It means looking for opportunities to contribute, not waiting for your boss to tell you what to do, or not waiting for someone explicitly to order you to do something, but rather coming up with your own vision, your own ideas, and then testing them and seeing what works and what creates value for other people. I know a lot of people who started businesses, including my parents, including business owners that I've invested in. Um, what they all have in common is they get into business because they want to be able to create their own vision and then enact it. And that's self-actualization. What self-actualization is, is being able to um, direct yourself and um, create a vision for an ideal state of the world, a better way to, a better way to do something. And then to not just have this remain an idea in your head, but to implement it in the world and see how other people respond to it. See what they think about it. Does it actually help them improve their lives? That's the heart of self-actualization. But if you're not able to set your own vision, if you're not able to create your own business model, but actually have to take only one template handed down from authorities, you're unable to do that. I don't see what the attraction of being an entrepreneur is in a society that doesn't let entrepreneurs create their own visions and pursue them. I mean, at that point, you might as well just work as an employee because an entrepreneur is taking on a much higher level of risk. But what they're getting from it in return is that independence. But if you don't have that independence, where's the reward? Is there anything that that we haven't covered about stakeholder capitalism that we should know? I want to make sure that if there's anything out there that you wanted to talk about but I didn't ask about, that we get that in here also. Yeah. I would just say that very often you'll read articles that are either pro or anti-stakeholder capitalism in a very uh, sort of universalist way. And another thing I would like you to come away from this podcast understanding, uh, you, O oh, listener, is you know you should ask yourself the question, are they talking about a voluntary implementation or a mandatory implementation? Don't necessarily write it off or endorse it all the way if you can't answer that question. Because the most important, the most important issue to address is whether we're leaving it up to the investors and the entrepreneurs to try a variety of different approaches, or are we requiring them all to follow a one-size-fits-all approach? It's so instead of just focusing on this sort of. Um, cliched debate now at this point between shareholder capitalism and stakeholder capitalism, I would recommend focusing instead on the issue of whether it's being implemented in a voluntary way or in a mandatory way. Thanks again to Russell for joining the podcast to talk about stakeholder capitalism. And if you have any questions about this part of economic opportunity, 
or any of the other priority initiatives we've talked about on the podcast before, please send me an email at toppriority at afphq.org. I'm looking forward to reading it. And if you haven't taken the opportunity to leave a review of the podcast, please consider doing that now on whatever service you're using. Until next time, take care and we'll see you then.